My name in Army game is Tankatron 5000. <laughs> nice! <laughs> oh, that's awesome! See, because Tankatron was already taken. Oh. Are you serious? In 1000, 2000, 3000, What's it called? What's the Army game called? This means war. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Yes, boundaries. I think that I've thought about this with celibacy a lot, that the boundaries that you have to put up to guard a celibate vocation um, both for yourself and for other people, like even just to the utilitarian practical level, like I'm just not going to be alone with a young woman in a room where people can't see me, you know, for my sake and for her sake. And, and, you know, just to protect, not that I'm going to act or she's going to act, or I think there's any ulterior motive, but that's just a boundary, but also like, uh, you know, not flirting and like kind of blurring the edges of like who I am. I'm not a bachelor. I'm not a man that's on the prowl. I'm a, I'm, you know, I have a spouse that I'm committed to for life. And I act like that. And that's not to, and the boundaries are not set up to prevent intimacy. I think that's a, that's a big misconception that like, oh, priests can't live. Isn't it so sad that father doesn't know what real love is? When in fact, the boundaries are set up precisely to guarantee intimacy. Because when a person knows by all your actions and by who you are and the clothes you wear that you are a priest and you know you're a priest and you're happy about that, that they can bear parts of their souls that they can't bear to even their own spouse. And they can trust you. Their closest friends, they can trust you. They know that you're not interested in them in a way that's sordid or, you know, untoward. Um, or not in keeping with your vocation or who you are, your identity. And so that guarantees the kind of intimacy that priests are afforded uh, and the people that they minister to, they can enjoy um, because they know and you know your relationship, uh, which is one of chaste celibacy. Imagine if doctors, you know, were flirting with patients or psychiatrists or psychologists or something. They have yeah. to keep that professional. Mechanics. Mind. Yeah, if your mechanic is... <laughs> What am I getting under your hood? (laughs) Easy, fella! (laughs) Right, it would be very uncomfortable. I would definitely go to a different mechanic. Their hands are so dirty. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But in a way, the priesthood, it's even more so than a doctor. Because you tell your doctor stuff, you wouldn't tell your spouse. A lot of times people do that. Um, I was just talking to a doctor at a wedding. He, he's just become a full-fledged doctor, uh, just finished his residency. And he was said, you, so do you like being a doctor? And he's like, oh, I love it, man. People just welcome you into, and he's like, you know this as a priest. People just welcome you into a part of their life that you feel very privileged to be part of, uh, to, to serve a person this way. And he's a Catholic fella, very serious about his faith. He's a convert. Um, but just very grateful that people are willing to, in a way, undress themselves right. beforehand, yeah, trusting that he's got their good at heart. You know, people people often like apologize. They'll be like, "I'm sorry for telling you all of this," and 
But it's true. It's such a privilege. Like yeah. most of the world lives life on a level of it's like a, a very shallow level, right? And, and almost all the time, like they're rarely encountering people on the level of what's what's most important or what's going on or, or their woundedness or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But you show up, even as a seminarian experiences, and people just invite you in to just the gunk of their life. And it, it is like, it's truly a privilege. And you realize, I think this is really helpful for ourselves. It's like, when someone opens themselves like that to you, never ever do you love them less. Like, yeah. anytime they convince you, like, they, they, they open up to their struggles and woundedness mm-hmm. and things, you never ever are like, oh... Um, oh, I didn't know that. No. <laughs> never, ever, ever. You're just always like, I am bursting with love for you right now. You know, in the strangest situations, like these people that are just dejected. If that's one thing I could tell to every penitent before confession, that the more you accuse yourself of sin, the more I'll love you. You know, as the priest, that's that's exactly the experience I have just in these couple months, a month and a half of being a priest is like, the people that really do open up and you can tell are struggling and are ashamed or whatever and they don't want to say this but they're going to say it anyway. There's a, For every one of those, there's a bunch of people out there that's like, I'm not going to tell the priest this because he'll think I'm a weirdo or sick or you know a jerk or whatever. Or a sinner. Yeah, he's going to think I'm a sinner. <laughs> and he'll like me better if I'm not a sinner. Yeah, I like this guy. He's not a sinner at all. <laughs> the, the, the truth is the exact opposite. You're so yes. impressed by the person or the courage it takes to do that. And humbled by the fact that you're the person that they trust with this information and with the opportunity to speak mercy into that situation in our life. You're like, geez, that's the most impressive confession I heard this whole time. Yeah. Not the, the most like disgusting or, or whatever they kind of feel about themselves. That's the whole point of the sacrament is that the person hears the forgiveness of God through a human voice, which is ours, God's unworthy servant. But, like, yeah, you don't feel less love for a sinner. No. And that's what—that's the priestly heart, man. That's the heart that he puts in the priest, is for sinners. For the people that feel like I'm nothing. You know, to tell them that there's something. Relax. And the necessity to actually say, like, to come to another person and say the thing you're most ashamed of. So, well, I can just do this at home, you know, just confess to Jesus silently in my heart or whatever. But there's something about... Forcing yourself to face the reality mm-hmm. of your sin, tell another person that makes that forgiveness. I don't know. I can't say more real, but well, it's uh, it's sacrosanct too yeah. that we can't say. You know, the seal of the confessional is in a way like who who can offer what we're offering in terms of secrecy, confidentiality that transcends law or anything. Like yeah, imprisonment. We're saying, <laughs> we're saying like. <laughs> Look at it on a practical level. We're saying, if I tell anyone what you just said, I will be excommunicated from the church. The same church that I promised respect and obedience for my entire life gave up a wife and family, money, everything. Like, I've given my life to this church. I'm not about to tell your secret to be excommunicated from her. <laughs> you know? The stakes are so high for us. I'll have to be personally reinstated by the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> the Pope of the world. I'm going to have to convince Pope. him that I can be trusted again. Right. Yeah. There's no because tighter you, seal. Because you stole watermelon from the hinky dinky. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
Your secret. They had to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's made up. I've never heard a confession dealing with either one of them. Hinky dinky. Hinky dinky. What's hinky dinky? A grocery? grocery store, yeah. In Nebraska? It's like Piglet Wiggly. It's like Piglet Wiggly. There you go. The try and save? <laughs> that I think that's a Simpsons. It's a Simpsons for try and save. Ryan! Oh, try and save, yeah. <laughs> but there's the other side of the confessional, too. Like, I remember when we saw that. Was it the act of killing? The art of killing? The act of killing? Mm-hmm. You were so worked up at the end because mm-hmm. the guy is a professional assassin and all this, and he just. He finally comes face to face with who he is. And, and there's nothing he can do because he's not a Christian, he's not a Catholic, he can't go to confession. Mm-hmm. You were like banging the couch like he, he needs mercy and he can't get mercy. He needs a priest. He needs a priest. <laughs> of course, you were like two weeks in at the time. It's true, man. Those heady days of the youth of your priesthood. <laughs> Weeks ago. <laughs> How long have you been a priest now, Nick? Three years. When's your anniversary? May 28th. May 28th, so we missed it. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. So what do you know three years in that you didn't know two years in or one year in? Hmm. Wisdom, be attentive. Pressure's <laughs> on. We can come back to you. Yeah, it's it's not. It's it's real versus notional assent. That's that's the big. Like it was all imaginative at one point. It was something that I was, that I was, imagining about the future, about what I would like to be or what I would hope to be, and now the particular concrete circumstances of that are. In my memory, not in my uh, sort of projecting intellect, you know. So I, I have concrete examples of what of what all those things that you're talking about, you know. It just calls up these memories. I had to give a talk on uh, to the seminarians or prospective vocation uh, people. We have this event in our prison mass every year, and they're like, "Just talk about the five things that you've that you've most uh, that have most affected you as a priest." And I was like, well, um, all of those happen in the confessional. So I'll start at like number 78. <laughs> <laughs> First 77, I can't talk about. <laughs> you know, like all of those experiences are just, um, I mean, they happen every day. They happen every day. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's what I would say is that now, I've, I don't know that anything's changed. It's just that. I don't know. Maybe maybe what what has changed is that um, I have a deeper affection for my fellow priests than I did before. Mm-hmm. That's probably what's changed the most. Like appreciation for what they've gone through, or, or what, what you've been in their shoes. Just glad that they're there. You know, and that I kind of need that. I need that support. I need to give that support. We've been we've been hit by a number of just either departures or treatments or you know scandalous revelations that just put it in perspective you know like and we are just we're not operating at 100 percent. we're not we're not firing on all cylinders mm. and that probably figuring out a way to depend on each other and work together more closely and share our lives with one another is what yeah. we're missing because mm-hmm. i was very blessed i had i had really good pastors that i've lived with my first three years and I'm going to miss that now as I go out on my own. It's not going to be there. But you're living with other priests, though. Correct? Not yet. Not yet. When? 
if we build this new rectory, that oh, all really? three of us can live in right now. We're, we're so you're separate. moving into your own house? Mm -hmm. Well, oh, that's lame. Yeah, yeah, it does feel that way. It feels lame. Which, yeah, I mean, is the opposite of what you would think. You know, like, finally, mm -hmm. I get to run my own show. You know? yeah. I, I don't have to run anything by anybody. I just, and, and that just, so much of what I enjoyed about that common life was just, oh, there's somebody else here that has a different set of expectations about what's fun or interesting or good to eat or whatever. And adapting to that is kind of, mm -hmm. kind of fun and, and draws something out of you in the process. And that's the danger, I think, of, of celibate priesthood is that you do more or less, well, like Brian used to say, you become your own pet. Oh, yes. Why is there something rather than nothing? Tell the story before we're done here. Or let Scott tell it for you. Of the, uh, <laughs> yeah, of the Pentecostal thing, Servant Quarter. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> okay, so we're... Um, we're on the uh, on the grounds of the place where traditionally the, um, the the Pentecostal movement began. So in 1901, there was this old mansion called Stone's Folly. So it was called Stone's Folly because this guy Stone built something way too big and he couldn't finish it, and it ended up abandoning it and it turned into like this roadhouse for a while, um, and then it kind of got taken over by these. Uh, Christ, these evangelical Christians who were praying and the Holy Spirit fell and began speaking in tongues and that was sort of the, the spark of this of this movement. Anyway, that has been publicized pretty pretty well and now, even though a Catholic parish is built on that site, people come from all over the country to visit this place. So frequently we'll get a knock on the door of the rectory on like a Saturday afternoon. This is your place? This is our parish, yeah. Really? And they'll be like... We're here from Florida to tour the tour the place, and you know this is this is where it all began, and where, where you know where was the house or anything, you know, things like that. And I um, I'm not really sure. I'm not up on all of the particularities of that, but <clears throat> probably within within a year or so of being there, the parish, I, I was like, I, I tried to get a sense of where where those things were, and they they somebody told me that the rectory is now built on the foundations of what was once the carriage house of the mansion, so like the servants' quarters. And, um, you know, these people will come around and, and um, they'll ask for, you know, just, just different questions. And it's one day, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the sacristy getting ready for a wedding or something. It's probably 12, 12, 1 in the afternoon. And I hear this lady just shrieking outside the church. And I run outside and there's this like line of people walking by the rectory. Uh, and I'm, I have this panic look on my face like somebody just got mugged, you know, like that Ooh. sort of thing, or is somebody just keeled over and is dead, and somebody's, well, it was just these, this group of Pentecostals who were praying around the, uh, around the premises, the grounds of the, of the place, and uh, apparently the Holy Spirit moved them to this sort of groaning, aching, crazy prayer, blood curdling, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, which which <laughs> terrified me, but that that sort of always comes as a, as a reminder to me when I explain that to people because um, I mean that that's been more or less the way that I've tried to contextualize my my priesthood is is that I'm I'm living in the servants' quarters, right? So now it's not some rich guy with a big house; it's Christ and that 
uh, just in the same way that his whims were indulged by his servants, right? Who, I mean, he's like, well, um, saddle up the horses and get the carriage ready because I'm, I'm going to Atchison, right? And I don't care what time it is, you work for me, so get it done, yeah. right? And the way those people were just expected to go do that. And they did it. They did it. Usually without grumbling, that was just part of their world. And uh, the fact that I'm frequently tagged or, or uh, expected to do things that are of far greater importance than get the, you know, oh, I'm back from my journey. Go ahead and take care of the, take care of my luggage. You know, uh, it, it's just a good reminder to me that that's a very, uh, it's just a liberating way of looking at my life because... The Christ is in the mansion, you live in the servants' quarters. I'm there to I'm there to serve. And there is no reason to complain. And the three o'clock call is not like an imposition upon your life, but it's concordant with like, well yep. this is what I'm for. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. This is my job. When a sick I, baby cries I, in the middle of the night, the mother's maybe not happy about it, but this is her job, right? Or the father. Get up, take care of the kid. Somebody somebody said the other day, like, I'm sorry for uh, taking up so much of your time and I don't know where this phrase came from, but I was like, I wasn't ordained to check my email. I don't know where it came from. It just came out of me. I was like, oh, I needed to hear that. <laughs> but it came out of my own mouth. <laughs> That's beautiful. Unexpected. Like Balaam's ass. You can feel very uh, almost arrogant when you're like, I said this thing the other day. I just found it to be very profound. <laughs> That's right. Also, check out this joke I told. <laughs> No, but you're in a posture of receptivity, and so you end up saying these things. You're like, that's exactly what I needed to hear me say. And another thing. (sighs) It's a beautiful thing. I was just about to say that. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, as the only non-priest in this room right now, it's an amazing thing. What's it like, do you make to to be be so close to to the ordination? I was at all of your ordinations. How long have you not been a priest now? Um, Four and a half years. (laughs) Yeah. What's it like? Oh, wow. Wow, that's You'll never understand it. <laughs> just have to experience You have to be there. You have <laughs> yeah. to live it. You have to experience it yourself. Scott. No, but all of you, smart, capable people. Handsome. Go on. <laughs> Most of you handsome. Some of you smart. You could have done all kinds of things, you know? And I know, I don't I don't know about all of you, but it was probably a surprise. A vocation to a surprise? Yes. When did this, this idea become Yes. I was 16 years old working on the roof of my parents' house. I was struck by lightning. And I slipped slipped on a bucket of nails. (laughs) And as I tumbled to the ground... (laughs) I have to give my life to Jesus. I was free in free fall. Couldn't have been more than two and a half seconds. But it felt like two and a half million years. (laughs) None of that's true. (laughs) No, that's not true. That never happened. That never happened. I don't... People keep saying, thank you for saying yes. Or thank you for your vocation. Oh, which doesn't make any sense. God but, gave me the vocation. But I... I, I, I mean, I, I went along with this. But it was like you, you saw a sunset and you just stopped to watch the sunset. And somebody comes up and you're like, thank you so much for watching the sunset. Yeah. Like, look at the sunset. <laughs> it's incredible. You know what I mean? That's what it feels like to me. It's like something beautiful happened, and I just was like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. And before you know it, 
the bishop's laying hands on you, and it just happened. And you're happier and more fulfilled than you've ever been. And then all these people give you presents, <laughs> you know? And Thank you like, for all the sacrifices. You're sacrificing. You're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I'm so happy. Like, you can't fathom how happy I am. Yeah. So it's never felt like, I don't know. It was never a decision. And in some ways, I don't even feel like it was that much of a yes. It was just like, it's just it was something beautiful that was captivating. So you just did it. Like you were seized by God. It's, a, it's right. done. If two people run away. Thank you for not running away. Right. <laughs> That's what they should say. I go up to married people and say, thank you for falling in love. Yeah. <laughs> Saying yes to each other. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. And that's why I I filled in for somebody's, like, they were supposed to give a vocation talk in a parish. And a little girl asked me something about uh, how you, like, figured out um, what about, you know, how you were supposed to be a priest. And I think I'd heard this line before. I was like, well... To be honest, figuring it out is a lot less like solving a puzzle and a lot more like falling in love. And this little like eight-year-old girl just had the coolest smile on her face. You know, <laughs> she was just like delighting in that. Uh, and it, so I can't take credit for the line, but that's been very true for me because mm-hmm. it is. And in it, in as much as it's like falling in love, it's something. It's something you don't explain, like or you, expect. You don't expect it. You're not looking for it. You can't explain it. But you don't describe like why I love someone. It's just. Mm-hmm. It, it's not how it works. It's their hair. I love uh, the, specifically the length of her <laughs> hair was very attractive to me and the paleness of her irises. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> There's something good about that with being told. Thank you. They're not, I mean, you experience, they're not giving it to you. You know, you know it's, it's, it's them somehow offering this to to Christ that that, that that there's something that they've experienced in the priesthood that is uh, that demands a response of gratitude. But yeah, I, I agree. So I don't mean to like say, oh, they're, they're right. so wrong. But what I do want to like condemn is any attitude of look at what that priest has done. Right. If only I would have done something like that. Right. I had or, a buddy, or the attitude that it's like. Thank God he did it, so somebody else didn't have to jump on that grenade. Because that, that, no, it's true. Like it's that, sad. People like mourn for you almost. Yeah, at they're times. like, oh, but thank you for doing the thing that no one wants to do. No one wants to do. But they've been implicit sense that it is sacrificial work. But I, I had a buddy. I had a buddy who, who had married a gal and it didn't work out, and uh, he's got the kids, and he's working sixty hours a week at this job, and he hates his job, and so he's going to night classes. Because uh, he didn't graduate from college. And he's always there to drop the kids off and pick them up from school. So he's getting like three hours of sleep at night. And he has the audacity to say to me, thank you so much for your sacrifice. He's not even Catholic. And I'm just like, stop. Right. Stop. Like, look at your life. Right. Like, what you're doing is like heroic love for these people. And uh, it was a beautiful moment. And he was like... You know, I've never thought about it like that. Because you just do it. Like, you, you know, you can't... It's hard to step back and see your own life. But I was like, listen, man. My life is a cakewalk. And what you're doing is heroic. And I can't imagine doing it. So, like, let's not pretend that you're not doing something sacrificial. But a priest is a public person. And I think people think... Not that they own you in the sense they can boss you around. But someone who develops... We belong faith, to them. Yeah. If yeah. they love the Eucharist, if they know they're a sinner, if they really appreciate... 
confession and all the sacraments, not dying outside the church, all that stuff, they're going to love you for being the guy who gives it to them. So I love you, man. I got the power! Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. And down.